0: Tonight we are looking at Exodus chapter 16, the idea of, um, well, it's the story of God giving his people bread from heaven. He gives them quail as well, meat and bread, but we're really focusing tonight on feasting on the bread from heaven. And it really is, um, it really is interesting, um, that last hymn that we sang, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, um, you know, there's been some studies done sort of looking at every hymn book that was published in America and comparing all of the hymns that are in there and trying to figure out which were the most widely used hymns. And of the top 10 of the, you know, 18th, 19th century, well, really 19th century in America, that one, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, is always in the top 10. It's like way near the top. We don't sing it very much. And I think it's interesting when you think about the kinds of things that people were experiencing in the 1800s as they pushed westward and all that kind of stuff. This hymn meant a lot to people. Um, It's harder, I think, in some ways, for us to, to really connect with the importance of daily bread. We're so much more, in a lot of ways, disconnected from producing things that take care of us. In a lot of ways, so many of us are several layers removed from, um, you know, the food that we eat and all these sorts of things. Um it is interesting. One of the things I actually appreciated about being a full-time musician was sometimes you very obviously saw God's provision because you had no work and then you get a call and, you know, you don't have a regular paycheck. There's something kind of nice about that. It's actually one of the uh, encouraging things about raising support. We raise support, Wendy and I, to do this ministry. And sometimes... The Lord just brings money out of the blue. That's happened a couple times in the last couple months, even in the midst of this difficult economy. And it's really, it's really wonderful. The Lord provides for his people and especially um, makes provision for our deepest and greatest need, which is to be reconciled to him and to sit down and to feast with him. And so um, let's pray together and then we're going to look at Exodus chapter 16. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray now that you would bless even the reading of your word and then in, in particular the foolishness of preaching that we may see you and understand more about what kind of God you are and what it means to be in a relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read the first 16 verses, and we're going to jump down to the end. But if you have a Bible, look with me at Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community sat, set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, meaning Moses and Aaron, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It is crazy, like when we start complaining and grumbling, how our memory just gets really (laughs) distorted. I don't know when they thought they were sitting around pots of meat um, when they were in slavery in Egypt, but... Anyway, that's what they think. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord Who brought you out of Egypt? And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening, and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. So Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite, sorry, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked to the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God." That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Jump down to verse 31. The in-between section here is some of them don't obey the instructions. They try to store up extra and it gets all full of maggots. Some of them um, try to go out on the Sabbath, even though the Lord said, I'm going to rest and not give it to you on the Sabbath and you should follow my example and rest also. Some of them don't follow his instructions. But then um, the story ends here at verse 31. The people of Israel called the bread manna, which literally means, what is it? It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. So they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. That means he put it in the ark. As uh, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled, they ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an ephah, in case you were wondering. (laughs) What are we going to look at tonight? We're going to look at three things, basically. Who are the people that get to eat this? What are they like? Why does God give them this bread? Why does he give them the bread? And then what is the bread signifying to us? In in particular, the bread is a symbol, a picture for us of the word. Both the word of God, the Bible, and the incarnate word, Jesus himself. So that's what we're going to look at. Who are the people that get to eat? Why does God give them this bread? And what is this bread supposed to picture for them? So the first point to make is that these are a pilgrim people. We sang several hymns about being pilgrims. And I know you think of the the people that came over here uh, to this country, you know, and the Thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff. When you think about pilgrims, that word has sort of gotten taken away from its original meaning in a lot of ways. I mean, the pilgrims were considered pilgrims um, because they lived this way and they understood that the point of the Christian life was that um, while you are to to, to live and work for the good of the world in th- that you've been put in, you also are not, you not really are at home here. That the Christian life, in, in a lot of ways, is like a vagabond life, that you're on the move. And we talked about that, right, when we talked about the Passover meal, that they were to eat it with their sandals on and ready to go with their skirt, you know, their shirt, you know, tucked in to their um, waist, ready to, ready to be on the move, because this is the picture of God's people. Uh, We eat with God, and then we're on the move. He sends us out. Um, They are pilgrim people. It's interesting and instructive, I think, to see that right after God delivers his people from bondage in Egypt, he sends them through the desert, wandering in the desert, right? And and I just think, you know, the the reason I wanted to just talk about this, because we're going to be wandering in the desert for a while with the Israelite people as we study the life of Moses this semester. It's good to zoom out and and see the big picture point, which is what do you expect following Jesus to feel like? If you're thinking about following Jesus, if you are following Jesus and you're wondering if it's really what you thought it was going to be, maybe it's not what you thought it was going to be, I think in a lot of ways we have really... Um, wrong expectations about what it will be like to follow Jesus. And it's instructive for us to see that this is the more typical picture of what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to be in a relationship with God is to be a pilgrim people. A people that are wandering through the desert, wondering where their next meal is going to come from. In a lot of ways, it's hard for us to identify with that because we live in America. But that's always been sort of the case with most of the people in the world. And it certainly was the case with the people that the Bible was originally delivered to and given to. Their context was this, pilgrim people. But, you know, what's what's interesting is this idea of the desert and wandering the desert. It's a big theme in the scripture. And there really are three things that the Bible tends to bring up and bring out of this idea of being a pilgrim in the desert. And and Peter ends in his commentary on Exodus, talks about this. I want to just pick this up for you. We're going to talk about some of these things more in detail in other passages. But what you see over and over again, these three themes interwoven whenever it's talking about God's people being pilgrims wandering through the desert. The first is grumbling. There's a lot of grumbling in the desert. It comes up a lot. And it's interesting, God's reaction to the grumbling changes as the story goes on. His reaction here is not what you might think. And even like when you take, you know, they're grumbling against me, therefore I'm going to rain down upon them bread. <laughs> not, not fire and brimstone, bread. But later you get to Numbers 21 they're going to grumble, and God is going to send serpents to bite them, and a bunch of them are going to die. We'll talk about that when we get there. But grumbling is all through the desert narrative. One of the things that God sort of, I guess, is able to sort of bring to the surface through the desert, and God's people wandering in the desert, is the discontent and their suspicion of him. And he's able to bring it to the surface and deal with it. Second, God's gracious provision—it's everywhere in these desert narratives—that that that God, in spite of the grumbling, is still a gracious God who provides for His people. And third, God's testing of His people, which I'm going to talk about in a couple minutes. And so, I guess you know, for you to think of yourself this way, I, I want to ask you this question: Do you think of yourself, if you're trying to follow Jesus, do you think of yourself as part of a pilgrim people, called to follow God through the desert? I think in a lot of ways, we need this story. We need this image. We need to sit in this story for weeks upon end, which is what we're going to do, to help fight against the sense of entitlement that we have as Americans, that we deserve something so much more. You see, this is one of those stories that comes in and it says, wait a second, do you understand who you really are? God's people are a pilgrim people. Wandering around in a desert, what do you expect it to feel like to be a pilgrim people? What kind of hope and security and financial security do you expect in this world? What you know, what what do you expect it to feel like to c- follow a crucified God? And you think you can follow a crucified God and people will be impressed and think that you've got it together and that you're, you know, a smart, intelligent person? No. <laughs> In in so many ways, we we have this, this, I think, this sense of entitlement that keeps us far from dependence upon God and his daily bread. We feel that daily bread is not enough, even though the bread he gives them tastes like honey and even is foreshadowing for them of the land he's promised to bring them into. See, even the bread that's the provision is also speaking to them of the fuller enjoyment that is coming. And even the Lord's provisions here, Um, help whet our appetite for the fuller provision we will taste one day when we'll sit down with him, the marriage supper of the lamb. Still, in spite of that, we feel like we deserve so much more. And it's helpful for us to sit in this image and say, do we understand ourselves as the pilgrim people wandering through the desert? It's one of the reasons we like to sing songs about that a lot, trying to get it into our hearts and souls. This is who we are. Because the world would tell you something very different about who you are. They would say, you're the future. You're great. You can do anything you want. All you got to do is set your mind to it. Uh, they tell you all kinds of crazy things. You're a consumer, and the only value you have is what you choose to buy. There's all kinds of things that the world would tell you you are. God says you're a pilgrim people called to follow him even when he leads you through the desert. Right? Second thing to notice about who these people are who get to eat is they're a needy people. You don't wanna, we don't want to minimize how difficult it is to be in the desert okay? It's a difficult place for God's people because it's a place where they have to trust God alone. We don't like being in that place. As a matter of fact, I think we go out of our way to to sort of set our lives up in a way where we won't really have to ever be in that place. We always sort of have something to fall back on. God's people, though, God brings his people into the desert, and he will bring you into the desert, I suspect. Um, at some point in your life, maybe multiple times, probably multiple times, because he's committed to teaching you that you were made to be dependent upon him. And the desert is one of the best places for him to teach us about that, right? But God's people have often found that there's nothing like the desert for growing more like Jesus. And of course, it should be that way. Jesus was a man of sorrows, and, and if we want to understand who he is, it's difficult to do that from a distance, particularly from a distance from suffering, if you're not ever in the midst of that. I've always been challenged, sobered, and encouraged at the same time by this quote by C.H. Spurgeon. You know Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. You may know about him. He preached you know, to thousands and thousands of people. He'd been a Christian basically two years when he started preaching, and pretty soon he was preaching to a church of 10,000 people a week, right? He said he probably never preached a sermon that someone didn't convert it. I mean, all these amazing stories about his um, success and the great things that he was able to do for God, you know, his his sermons are still all in print. they something like 63, 64 volumes of his sermons, Um, all this kind of stuff, right? And yet, you know, a lot of people don't know what incredible suffering he endured. Incredible suffering. For probably the last 15, 20 years of his life, he suffered terribly with gout. I don't know what gout is, but when I read the descriptions of it, it sounds horrible. Horrible. Like an arthritis kind of thing. He had to basically go to France all winter long, while his wife, because of her physical ailments, had to go to another place, Scotland. So, you know, for the last 15, 20 years of their life, they would spend like four months apart. Right? Both of them, you know, seriously ill. Not only that, there was there was one occasion early in his ministry when he was preaching at this place, and some some you know people in the back of the room shouted "fire." It caused a stampede; a bunch of people were trampled and killed. He had no idea that it was going on, so he kept preaching. Afterwards, when he found out what had happened, he was so distraught he basically went into like a comatose state for weeks. He really never people that knew him said he was never the same person again. I think he was in his mid-20s when this happened, right? And, and, and you hear all these stories and, and, and you go, okay, th- listen to this quote in light of all that. Spurgeon says this, I can truly say of everything I've ever tasted in this world of God's mercy, and my path has been remarkably strewn with divine loving kindness. But he says, I feel more grateful to God for the bodily pain I have suffered And for all the trials I've endured of various sorts than I do for anything else except the gift of his dear son. I am sure that I have derived more real benefit, permanent strength, growth in grace and every precious thing from the furnace of affliction than I've ever derived from prosperity. So what are you longing for? (laughs) I remember years ago in seminary, one of our professors who's struggled with cancer for like fifteen or twenty years, uh, maybe at least fifteen years, um, get, getting up and talking about it at chapel one one day, and how the cancer that they thought was in remission had returned. And I just remember him talking about the way the Lord had met him in the midst of this, and every you know, in a dry eye in the place. And, and then we went to our next class, and the professor, Doctor Yarbrough, said. You know, we all admire Dr. Calhoun. We all admire his faith. But which of us would, would choose cancer to get that result? Which of, which of us desires to be that much like Jesus? Right? Now, of course, the Lord rarely gives us a choice. Because he cares so much to form Jesus in us that he brings us into the desert. And what I want you to say is, man... In in some ways, we spend so much effort trying to avoid the thing that really is what mature Christians consider some of the most precious times they've ever had with the Lord. And we spend so much time doing everything we can to avoid suffering at all costs. We do, do everything we can to put ourselves in a place where we won't really need to depend upon God. But you see, God is working to make you dependent upon him. So there are needy people and so are we. Um, the third thing is they are complaining sinful people, right? It's only been a month since they went through the Red Sea. Now they're camped. The, the, the logistics are they're camped by the Red Sea again, or at least some part of it. But instead of remembering the provision of God, they make the most absurd charge. The, the Israelites, this is what Peter N. says it this way, the Israelites bring what is an absurd charge against their leaders. You brought us out in this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Now, that's like crazy. That's crazy. Who, who would think that? But see, this is what happens. Sin really is insane. Once we start down this path of complaining and grumbling and saying, God, you're not doing what I want you to do, it, it very quickly becomes craziness. And I wonder like how often the things that we think, the charges that we have against God, if we ever sort of take them out and examine them, because they, they, they probably will seem equally ridiculous. God, you did all that work to save us just so that you could bring us out here to starve us to death. Come on, really? Only the most calloused heart, Peter N. says, or the most stupid heart could make this kind of ridiculous charge. And, and, and so it is true. Don't Do not underestimate the kind of insanity that sin is. It's an important biblical theme, actually. That sin isn't just bad, it isn't just naughty, it's stupid. It's stupid. It's insanity to live in a way opposite to what God has made you for. So, (laughs) for what that's worth. But here's what's important to understand. Not all complaining against God is sinful. You see, there's a, a number of places in the Psalms where the psalmist complains to God. And, you know, the Psalms were written for us to use for worship. If you wonder, is it okay to say this to God? If it's in the Psalms, God's put it in there for you to be able to say to him. It's really a very refreshing thing to read through the Psalms and to make those prayers your own and to find that God has given me words to say that I know are divinely approved words when I'm angry, when I'm despairing, okay? And there are a lot of complaints in the Psalms. So what's the difference? Why why is this grumbling bad, but not all complaining is bad? And here, I think the big difference is is that there's one thing, it's one thing to cry out to God for help. It's quite another thing to close our hearts to him and complain in a way that's obvious that we think he's doing a poor job and we know that we could do a better job if he would just follow our instructions. Right? Right? It's the, there's a big difference between crying out to God and saying things are difficult and I don't understand what you're doing. That's very different than saying you brought us out here to die. You're an idiot, God. You don't have any power. You don't, you don't know what you're doing. Every time you get involved in my life, you make it worse, All right? There's, there's one thing to say that out of an honest brokenness and it's another thing to say that out of a self-righteous callousness. Right. So it's important to understand that. But, you know, even even though they don't they don't complain the right way. Look at what God does. I mean, this is amazing in this passage. Again, you expect it to say, and he rained down upon them fire and brimstone. But instead, I mean, even that language, he rains down upon them bread, bread. I mean, it's it's surprising enough that people only a month after being delivered through the Red Sea are complaining. But it's even more surprising that God blesses them with this provision. And did you see, when I was reading through that, like three, maybe four times, God keeps saying, so that you will know that I am God. So that you will know that the Lord delivered you out of Egypt. It's like, didn't they know already? The long suffering of God is so wonderful to behold, isn't it? the long-suffering of God, that these people who are complaining, he keeps saying patiently so that you would know that I'm God. I'm the one who delivered you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to give you this, right? It's amazing. You're not going to get what you, what you deserve. You're going to get bread from heaven. Well, why does he give him, why does he give him bread? And the first reason is this, because his grace exceeds our sin. Oh, isn't that good news to know? Paul talks about this in, in the book of Romans. He says, "Where sin abounds, grace abounds." But actually, it, 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 in the Greek, it says, "Grace superabounds." Paul has this habit of making up words. He really does. He like adds these, these prefixes that make up brand new words, because the regular words just aren't big enough. We almost need to do that. Marva Dawn one point said, you know, in a w- culture like ours where you use stupendous to describe laundry detergent, it's hard to find words to use when you're talking about who God is and what he's like. So Paul f- found that he had to do that. He had to make up words. I don't know, maybe you need to make up some words for us. Um, His grace exceeds our sin. And, and you've got to understand, you see, one of the reasons that he gives them this bread in spite of their complaining it's the same reason that jewelers always show you diamonds against black velvet. They always show you diamonds against something dark because it makes them shine more, right? And so it is that God's grace abounds, superabounds, where sin abounds. God's grace shines best in the midst of our sin. And you know what's fascinating? This, Exodus chapter 16, is the first time the Bible says that God's glory appeared. And it's a story about them complaining. It's in a story about God's people complaining that it says for the first time His glory showed up. Isn't that amazing? That God would choose to show His glory to them in the midst of their sin. But isn't it always that way? We were talking, some of us earlier, about the idea of repentance. Repentance is like coming to your senses, collapsing upon grace. The beauty, the glory, the joy of repentance is that in the midst of your sin, God shows his glory when you come to him and you collapse upon him and you realize that there's nothing that could separate me from the love of God, because everything that would make God want to run away from me and regret that he ever invited me into his relationship, everything that would make him want to regret that has been dealt with. There's nothing you can do to make God regret loving you. Right? Isn't that good to know that? His glory shows up in this passage about complaining. Why why else does he give them bread? Because he wants to teach them who he is. Again, it's over and over again, so that you will know who I am. And, 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 you know, Peter N. says that this word saying you're going to know, that that was what he kept saying over and over again to Pharaoh. It's what he kept saying over and over again. God kept saying this to his people when they were in bondage. So that you know who I am, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So you will know who I am. And now he's still saying it. So that you will know who I am. In other words, God is not finished teaching them who He is. No matter, no matter how much He's done, He's delivered them out of bondage, for goodness sake, but He's still not done teaching them who He is. So He gives them bread so that they would know who He is. Later, you know, there's going to be this, there's this great story about Elijah on Mount Carmel, where most of Israel has is worshiping these false gods you know, demonic gods. And again, you know, there's this big power play kind of thing, big power struggle. But what Elijah says before he prays that God would call down fire and burn up the sacrifice, he says, Lord, so that your people may know who you are and that you're a merciful God, because they're going to need to know that because they've all turned away from you. So it's not just that I want you to burn up the sacrifice so that everybody will be really impressed and bow down and say, oh, don't kill us. No, I want them to know your mercy. So burn up the sacrifice and show them that you're still committed to accepting a sacrifice in their place, even though they don't deserve it, right? God is going to over and over again, so that you will know who he is. He never He never quits teaching us. I, I think as well, he, he gives them the bread because he says he wants to test them. And let's talk about this for a second. Test them. What does it mean? What does it mean when God says that God tests people? I think a lot of times people misunderstand what it, what the Bible means when it says God tests His people. God does not test His people because He's in doubt about what they're going to do. He doesn't test His people because He has no other way of figuring out what's really in their hearts or what they're really like. No, um, there's a fascinating verse in Exodus twenty twenty. Listen to this. Um, Moses said to the people, this is Exodus 20, 20, do not be afraid. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, that's fascinating. A couple of things in that. Do not be afraid. And yet he says, so that the fear of God will be in you. So the fear of God can't be being afraid of God. That's why in the Psalms it says, because there is forgiveness with you, O Lord, therefore will I fear you. So the fear of God is never being afraid of God. It's being so God-consumed that everything is, is lived and thought and felt in relation to who he is. The way Derek Kidner puts it, a great Old Testament scholar, he said, the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. That's, that's the way to think of it. It's, it's the ultimate reference point that changes everything else, right? So the, the, perp, you know, the purpose of, of these tests is not fear, uh, being afraid, right? Because he says, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, the point of the test is to train God's people in learning how to trust him. The purpose of the testing is is to train them in trusting. This this is what Peter ends. This is why he says this. God tests his people for their benefit, not his own. In other words, they're being taught how to obey God. This is what it means for God to test his people. The problem is not so much that they fail the test, but that they turn around and put God to the test. And that's coming up in the next chapter. But the tests, the testing, is to train them to trust. God is teaching them, the next point, to be daily dependent upon him, right? It has to be every day. Um, And and God, of course, has a deeper purpose behind feeding them in this strange way. Whenever God does something strange like this, he's always trying to teach them something. And um, we'll talk about this more later. But Deuteronomy 8 is a great summary of what God was getting at in these desert wandering stories. Because at the very end of all this, he says, this is what I was doing. He says, I was teaching you, I was humbling you, testing you. This is Deuteronomy 8. In order to know what was in your heart. Um, And then you know, Moses says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Justin mentioned how Jesus said that in the desert, but he quoted Deuteronomy 8. In other words, Jesus understood the point of desert testing. He himself underwent the desert testing that Israel underwent, except Jesus actually does what he's supposed to do where Israel fails, right? That's why it's so good to know that we get credit for the way Jesus succeeded in learning. But he understood that the point of the desert, temple, even the point of being fed with manna, was to teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone. In other words, the manna was to teach them that God can be trusted to give us what we need. And we need so much more than bread. You see that? The point of making them hungry was to feed them. The point of feeding them manna was to teach them that man does not just only need bread. We need God. If we lose sight of that and we think that all we need are the gifts of God, but not God himself, it's a huge problem. When we think that the gifts are enough and we want to just be content with the gifts, but we don't want to go on and know the giver through the gifts. You see, he says over and over again, I'm giving you this gift so that you would know me. Remember that, that word? It's an intimate word. Adam knew Eve and she got pregnant. It's an intimate word, relational word. So the point of the bread is that they would know God and know that they need more than bread. So what do we think about this bread? How, how is this bread for us um, a type of the word and a type of, of Jesus? And I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, so I'm going to go quick. But here, here's the, think, about, think about a couple things about this, the way it, it functions as a picture of God's provision in the word of God. The, the, the word of God is, is talked about often with this imagery of being the bread and being the kind of thing that we feed on. Uh, It's God's provision. The bread, the manna is God's provision. So is the word. And it comes to us where we are. This is an interesting thing to think about. The manna fell all around them such that they had to do something with it. They either had to pick it up and eat it or they would trample on it. And so it is with the word of God. It it, it comes to us. And it's here. We have it. No one has, has any kind of Reasonable excuse to say, you know, I don't have access to the word of God. It's all around you. So you either pick it up and you eat it or you trample upon it. We have easy access. And, and I don't know if we understand how difficult it was or all the things that God had to do to, to enable us to, to read the word, to have the word of God, right? Do you know how many people died so that we could have the word of God? And yet, I don't know, I probably got 20 Bibles and I never read any of them, (laughs) right? Do you know about the Martyr Bibles? Anybody ever told you about the Martyr Bibles? There's there's actually so many of these that there's a whole class of these. I remember one time being in Washington, D.C. and the Library of Congress has one of these. Martyr Bibles are Bibles mostly from the time of the English Reformation that are stained with blood because the people refused to give up the Word of God to the authorities that were trying to confiscate the Bibles and they had to literally hack their hands off. And there's so many of these Bibles that they're called martyr Bibles. There's like a whole class of them. It's not like there's just one cool story about this. There's like so many of them that they have a whole class. Martyr Bibles. Stained with blood from people's hands being hacked off because they wouldn't give up the Bible. Right? Wow. (laughs) The other thing about the manna, it has to be eaten. It's not enough to just admire it and say, wow, isn't that cool? Boy, I'm so glad we have manna all around us. No, you've got to eat it. doesn't do you any good if you don't eat it. You can't even store it up and say, well, I'll get to it later because it'll get full of maggots. I don't know. Your Bible doesn't get full of maggots if you don't read it. But it doesn't do you much good if you just admire and you're just happy of the fact that you have it and you have access to it, but you don't ever use it. A.W. Pink, who has a great little book on Exodus called Gleanings from Exodus, says, you know, just like, the, just like eating, the word of God, you have to appropriate it. It's not. It's not enough to just say, "Here's this wonderful, you know, meal spread before me. I've got to pick some up and eat it." And not only that, but I've got to chew it. I love this this word, masticate. You know, you know, chew it up. That's what, that's what it means, right? But it's the idea. The Puritans used to talk about this a lot. They had this. It's kind of a gross image, but it stuck with me. So I'll, I'll share it with you. They used to talk about meditating on the word as being like a cow chewing the cud. You know how the cow does it? Like they spit the food back up and they chew it all over again to try and get the, every last little bit of nutriment out of it. That's what meditating on the word is like. And so it's not enough just even to read the word. It's important to like chew it up. Um, to, to, to actually go over it and, and, and draw out morsels of nutriment from it. And I have some things on here for you. Um, you can read some more about this if you want. But I want to keep moving on. Um, how... One last thing about, about sort of a parallel between the manna and the word of God is this. It took work to gather up the manna. It says they're like snowflakes. I don't know how big they were. It doesn't sound like the manna was very big. But I know that a, an omer is, is, you know, a little less than an ephah. No, no, an omer, an omer is like two pints. Two pints. So, you know, it takes a little bit of work to gather enough of this stuff, Right? And so it is with the, uh, with the word. It takes work to read and to meditate upon the word. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Um, Jesus is the true manna that we have to feed upon. Jesus takes this passage, you know. I'm not just sort of making this up. Jesus says this in John chapter 6. He gets actually, it's right after he feeds. It says, you know, all you, you all know it is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It actually was 5,000 men, the Bible says. So it was probably 20,000 people that he feeds. And in doing this, all the people are like, hooray, here's the, the one like unto Moses that we've heard about. And yet they, they begin to question him and challenge him and say, well, you know, Moses gave us bread. So, you know, whoop de doo that you fed us. Moses did that. You're supposed to be better than Moses. And, and Jesus says, look, if you think the point of the Exodus story about the manna was that you would walk away from that and say, man, Moses was awesome. We need another Moses. You really missed the point. You missed the point. The point is not Moses. Jesus says it was the father who fed you and he fed you to point you to the true bread that he is providing right here and now. And in, 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 in the Greek in John uh, six thirty two, Jesus says the bread is here. He's feeding you now. Here I am. What are you going to do right? And this is what I want to get into this uh, sort of the last little deal. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Think of it this way. It means eating what God serves. Uh, there's this guy I really love. He was a student of C.S. Lewis's named Harry Blameyers, And he has um, a little book where he talks about different key words. And he just has like little two-page meditations on him. His thing on bread was really great. And he quotes this poet, R.S. Thomas, who says this. I, I think this is really really fascinating there are other people in the world sitting at table contented though the broken body and the shed blood are not on the menu there are a lot of people who are contented but the shed blood and broken body of Jesus aren't on their menu and I pray that it's not you I pray that it's not you. I pray that you're not contented if you're not feasting and feeding upon Jesus. And I mean that whether you're somebody who's just trying to understand who Jesus is or you're somebody who say, I've been a Christian, I've been a Christian a long time. If you're content and you're not feasting upon Jesus, then I pray that he would stir you up and make you discontent. Being a follower of Jesus means eating what he serves, even when we don't deserve it. And we read that, that beautiful poem, Right? Do you see how we're always resisting? We're always resisting wanting to be the needy guest. We're always, you know, okay, well, you know, if, if my shame won't dissuade you from inviting me in, well, then let, let me be a servant. Love says no, sit down and eat. What it means to be a Christian is ultimately to quit fighting and to sit down and eat. And, and in a lot of ways, what it means to live and to grow as a Christian means to let God serve you to sit down, to shut up, and to eat, right? One, one last little thing to t- tell you about. Jesus is the fulfillment that God of all that God has taught about bread. One of the other interesting things about the Old Testament is in the book of Leviticus where it lays out um, worship and what worship is to look like. It's fascinating that God puts bread right in the middle of Old Testament worship. I know you know about the sacrifices, how animals were sacrificed and the blood. We talked about that some with the Passover and the Passover lamb. But in Leviticus 24, it tells us that every Sabbath, 12 delicious loaves of bread were to be put right in the middle of the temple on a table of pure gold, and the priests were to feast upon it in God's presence. Isn't that beautiful? Feasting in the Bible, in the ancient Near East culture, always is about rich fellowship. So part of the point is, worship is not just to cover your sin. Again, it was like in the Passover. Feasting in God's presence, enjoying 12 delicious loaves of bread in his presence on a table of pure gold. Right? Jesus is the the one that we're going to feast upon and the one we're going to feast with for all eternity. And so if you want to live with him, you've got to get used to eating with him and eating upon him even now. And it's been a hard thing for God's people. Jesus, When Jesus tells people they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, they get offended and they, run, or they walk away. Right? And that's a fascinating passage there in John 6. But being a Christian and living as a Christian means eating what's on the menu. And what's on the menu is, is Jesus saying, I'm the one who gives you what you need. Quit trying to quit trying to pay for it. You can't sit down and eat. Now I'm going to do a convo, I think, because I don't have time to even get into this last section at all, and I couldn't possibly do it in in even if I'd had thirty more minutes. So I'm going to do a convo, uh, trying to get a little bit at this idea of feasting upon Jesus in the Word. Because I I really long for you all to understand better how to read the Bible in a way that you're feasting upon Jesus, not just learning theology so you can tell people why they're wrong, not just sort of feeling guilty about all the things you don't do. How do we learn to read the Bible to learn to feast upon Jesus? So I'm going to have to leave it at that, and we're going to pick up that topic for a convo. Let me pray for you.